Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. For those who are following along, I'm going to start at the 20th verse right above. For I tell you, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said in those ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. You have also heard that it was said, you shall, not, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Well, many of you have heard and... uh, experience these little personality inventories which ask you a set of questions about what you would prefer or how you would rather operate. And after grading the personality inventory, then there are descriptions of various types and and often they are contrasted like introvert, extrovert, feeling, thinking, and so forth. And there's this one contrast of personalities that that uh, has some that are very precise and intentional, detailed people, and some others that are not. And a way of illustrating the difference, uh, there is this example. And the detailed person will set up a filing system with a file cabinet for each big category, and each drawer is a separate subcategory. And in each drawer, there are color-coded files, and, and they're broken down into alphabetical and numerical sub-subsets. And there is a file for every possible contingency. And then there are those who are not that way. When they go to file something, they'll take the file folder and they'll go to the file room and they'll open the door and they'll toss it on a desk and they'll say, that's close enough. (laughs) Well, it might seem that our gospel lesson wants all of us to be the first type. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect. Now, the verses I read are just a few of the teachings of Jesus that Matthew gathers into his collection in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew presents Jesus in such a way that we see Jesus as the new Moses. Joseph and Mary have fled into Egypt to escape Herod like the children of Israel went down to Egypt. And then they come back. 
Jesus, in this passage, goes up the mountain like Moses went up the mountain to hear God's law. But then Jesus sits down and begins to teach his disciples who gather around him. Moses was Israel's greatest prophet. But Matthew presents Jesus as even greater than Moses and all the other prophets who spoke for God. In a simplistic way in describing prophets, we often think of them as saying, Hear the word of the Lord, or Thus saith the Lord, and then they will say to the people what they believe God has revealed to them. But Matthew presents Jesus clarifying and restating God's commands in this way. You have heard it said of old, but I say to you. Matthew wants us to understand that when Jesus speaks, when Jesus commands, he's not speaking for God, but he is speaking as God. We get a hint of this in Matthew's birth narrative when we hear, Look, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. For Matthew, Jesus is God with us. And when he speaks, he speaks not simply for God, but as God. Now, the point of this is that We're supposed to take these words very seriously. Take them to heart. When Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, my sermon title puts it, uh, he sets the bar very high. Or he sets the standards very high. You know that that high bar is easy to dismiss. Somebody didn't get it perfectly into the stand. So it's easy to dismiss this passage uh, and say they're just exaggerating. They can't really expect this to be what we're supposed to do, to be so perfect as God before we can enter the kingdom of heaven. Can it? And then you know we are pretty good at rationalizing those standards away rationalizing them down to our level of comfortable performance. You know, we could look at tithing. We could look at keeping the Sabbath holy. We could look at prayer and actually studying the Scriptures as a daily spiritual discipline. These are examples of how easily we do rationalize down the bar or the standards to our comfortable performance. But I'm not going to go there, because there is a more central message in this text, which I believe is more helpful than if I beat you up and give all of us a guilt trip to go home with. I have struggled personally with this text, to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect, since I was a young person. I, like Muzan, 
got my third grade Bible. And I read it. Not all of it, but I read in it. And I underlined things that spoke to me or raised questions for me. This passage particularly did both. It spoke to me and it raised questions for me. The way it spoke to me was that it reinforced an already present perfectionistic personality trait. Since that trait had me burning the candle at both ends, so to speak, trying to keep up with intense varsity athletics, trying to get an A and ace every exam and every homework assignment, being faithful and serving in the youth group at the church, I stressed my body and compromised my immune system. I developed health issues in high school, in college, in seminary. I had to recognize and learn to live within my limitations. And in recognizing the physical limitations, I learned about some other limitations, about psychosomatic issues like ulcers. In dealing with it, I discovered that I had several drivers pushing me toward this perfectionistic tendency. Again, like Muzan, my dad came home from World War II with a drinking problem as his way of self-medicating and dealing with the trauma of the war in the Philippines where he served. But he was self-disciplined enough to never take a drink before quitting time. He did get involved in that social business drinking and sometimes didn't know when to stop. However, there is something that happens when a parent has alcoholism and it does something to the kids. It inflicts feelings of insecurity and shame, like a big storm cloud that's always hovering overhead. In short, it's the feeling of fear and dread that the parent will be discovered drunk in public and bring shame and embarrassment to the family. Now, we've seen this happen, and we read about it in the papers, even recently, where a sports figure or an entertainer brings shame and embarrassment to the family when they are publicly drunk. The effect on some of us kids is to often try to do so well, we try to become a star athletically, academically, musically, or in some other talent so that we can build up a lot of stock in the family honor portfolio, building security against that time when shame and embarrassment might rain down on the family. Another driver of this perfectionist tendency for me was birth order. Now, I wasn't the firstborn. I had two older sisters. But in our culture, there is a strong influence of being the firstborn son, which I was, and the firstborn grandson. And then I was named William Earl Tankersley third. Now, one of the unspoken messages that is given to a son whose name ends in junior, or the third, or the fourth, 
is to not simply follow in Dad's footsteps, but to do better, to go farther, to climb higher, and to fulfill all of the unfulfilled dreams and aspirations of Dad, Granddad, and Great-Granddad. Now, along with those two drivers, in high school, I began to feel the call to ministry. Now, that's a whole story in itself, but for today, suffice it to say that I was already trying to do my best and to be my best, and this feeling of the call to ministry made this text be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect just added more fuel to the fire of burning that candle at both ends. Now, all of this is to say, I come to this text with deeply personal and serious investment of myself. It's not just a text I flipped through and I found something and I thought, well, that's a nice text. I'll bounce a lot of curious ideas off of it. This is deeply personal Now, over the years, I've discovered some distinctions that need to be taken into account when we approach this text. First, the Be Ye Perfect command is not spoken in terms of performance of particular skills and and tasks. It's not about scoring 100% on every exam. It's not about never missing a free throw, especially when the game is tied. It's not about running under a four-minute mile. And it's not about breaking each record that you approach whenever you try something. It's not about being perfect in all things. It's about being perfect in only one thing. But that one thing is a pretty big thing, being perfect in love. Basically, Jesus is telling us to love with an unconditional love like God loves us. Mercifully, forgivingly, generously, but also with high expectations for us. Truthfully, it's hard for us human beings, us imperfect human beings who come into this world red-faced, screaming, demanding, self-absorbed, needing adult people to provide for every want and need for us, for us to even survive. It takes time and learning to outgrow that totally self-centered, it's-all-about-me orientation. Now, it wasn't until I was working on preparing for ordination that I discovered our Methodist or Wesleyan perspective on this in our formal uh, ordination process. We are examined by our bishop and asked a series of questions before the whole annual conference. And the first question is fairly obvious and critical. Have you faith in Christ? Yes. But the next, second, third, fourth, and fifth of the 19 historic questions are about being perfect. They ask, are you going on to perfection? Do you expect to be made perfect in love in this life? Are you earnestly striving after perfection in love? Are you resolved to devote yourself wholly to God and God's work? 
Well, it's not spelled out there, but it is present in these questions that fulfilling this command to be perfect in love is a process of growing in grace. We don't do it by ourselves or on our own willpower. It is by God's grace working with us and in us. It's a process of our working with God on ourselves through those other spiritual disciplines of worship and prayer, study and reflection on the Scriptures. And when we learn from those disciplines, we learn to recognize those things in us that are in the way that are holding us back from developing this capacity to love unconditionally. When we recognize those things, we begin to clean our emotional and spiritual house, getting out the negative baggage of old hurts and resentments and disappointments, and make room for the positive feelings and attitudes. Now, with this process or developmental concept of perfection, are you going on toward perfection? I realize that, you know, if I prayed a lot and worked hard, that I might be able to get there once. To be perfectly loving and selfless and generous and have the other's interests and needs as forefront and any hidden agenda of mine to be cleared away, that I could get there one time. And if I could get there one time, I could get back there for a second time. You know, maybe twice a year, and then maybe once a month, and then maybe once a week, and once a day, several times a day until it became a healthy, good habit of having that thought process and that orientation. But, of course, there are setbacks. There will be people who come into our lives or situations that will require a lot of extra prayer and help from God. I remember a long time ago in church, there was a particular person with whom the relationship had become a little bit strained, for some reason, I, I don't know what it was or why, but the relationship wasn't as it should have been. And one day this person came up to me and really chastised me about something for which I thought I was wrongly accused. I didn't answer. I didn't really respond. I just went to my office, sat at my desk, put my head in my hands, and I prayed, Oh, God. Why me? What have I done to deserve this? And in that process of opening myself in prayer, I'll call it God, put a thought in my head. You know, you should be so thankful for this person. For this person drives you to prayer. Much more often than you would go otherwise. Well, I accepted that as a plan of action. So instead of getting tense and, and feeling awkward whenever I was in this person's presence or, or trying to avoid this person because of some new little conflict might flare up, I was happy to see this person because I had this 
it lifted my spirit. This person is a blessing to me. Instead of my thinking this person is my nemesis. Well, whatever that problem happened to have been that got in the way, it just evaporated. Thanks be to God. Well, I've learned a second thing about this command to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. It concerns the original languages that we have had translated into English for our Holy Scriptures. The New Testament writers wrote in Greek, a very precise language, with a huge vocabulary in order to make those fine distinctions, in order to get it right, to get it perfect. The Platonic ideals were that there were pure forms in heaven and that the material things in the world were just imperfect copies of the ideal perfection. Now, the Greek language lent itself to this kind of philosophical intrigue and use of words and concepts, and it was well developed by the time Jesus was walking the roads and paths of Palestine. But Jesus did not speak in Greek and Greek thought forms. Jesus spoke in Aramaic, a Semitic, Hebraic language base, which has a much smaller vocabulary. And it's less precise and less technical. It's more of a heart and feeling kind of language. So perfect in the sense that Jesus spoke had more of the meaning of complete, whole. And if something is complete and whole, then it has fulfilled its intent and its purpose. Everything has come together and works harmoniously. Musicians will understand that. Works harmoniously. may not be perfect. But it can be beautiful. When my son Will took piano lessons in elementary school, his instructor put on a recital for all the students to perform so parents could smile and be proud. But I'll never forget that little speech he gave before the recital. He said he never encourages his students to perform perfectly, but rather encourages them to do excellently. Rather than encourage them to be perfect, he says, never set perfection as your goal because whenever you make the tiniest, the slightest little mistake, you just failed. You have ruined your perfect performance. But rather he encourages them to be excellent. Make excellence your goal. If you make a little mistake along the way, it's not ruined you can still have an excellent performance. And in your training, you strive to take on bigger challenges, more difficult things, and get an excellent performance. And you grow. But if you just try to be perfect, you stay way down here low, and, oh, I got that perfect, but I'm afraid to take on anything new. I'm afraid to grow. So the bar gets set higher and higher as we progress. Now, when Jesus was preaching in Aramaic, his word was not our word perfect, but rather should be love like God loves with a complete love, a love that is so inclusive that no one's left out, not even the enemy. So we keep drawing that circle larger and larger to include more in that circle of love. In Luke's Gospel, the parallel says... Be merciful like God, that God forgives those 
who are wicked and ungrateful. Forgiveness is an act of love, of loving kindness. So if we're not to leave the bar set low, but keep the bar high and grow in our capacity of love, then our hearts and minds and spirits will be filled with God's love more and more and flow through us. That seems like a very complete and happy life. So why would we want to lower the bar to our present level of performance now? Let us keep the bar high so that our lives can be full. Amen. Amen.